Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us through your word, implanted deep in our souls, that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is a terrible form of government, except for all the rest. And the reason we say that, the reason that saying makes sense to us is because kings, by and large, engage in abuses. Usually it's just a matter of time. Lord Acton said it well, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's why our founding fathers had a system of checks and balances, not a concentration of power in the executive or in the legislature or in the judicial branch, but a spreading of power because we didn't trust absolute power. That's the realm that we are accustomed to. That's the realm of history that we have lived in for thousands of years. But a king is coming who is unlike any other king. A king is coming who we will celebrate him having absolute power. This is what the Davidic covenant is about. The Davidic covenant is about kingship. Because a king is coming who will be characterized by prosperity and peace and power And all of those things will be used for righteousness. Not the world's definition of righteousness, or if you prefer, justice. Not the world's definition of justice, but heaven's definition of justice and righteousness. The scripture promises a king who will be fundamentally different than any other king who has ever reigned. And his kingdom, his realm, will be fundamentally different than any other reign The Davidic covenant is a covenant about royalty and kingship. The Davidic covenant is often overlooked. It is minimized or glossed over. This is a big, big mistake. It's a mistake to spend 15 minutes on the Davidic covenant. And let's move on to something else. That is a huge mistake in the study of the scriptures. The Davidic covenant is incredibly important. It dictates how we understand what's coming. It dictates how we understand prophecy and God's coming kingdom. As you know, as we've seen in this study, there are four major covenants in the Bible. There are more than those four, but there are four major ones. The Abrahamic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. We've already studied the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, and today we begin the Davidic covenant Remember, covenant means promise. It's just a, uh, really, it's a legal word. It's a legal way of saying promise. If you enter into a 100-page contract, the very beginning of the contract will often say the parties here too, for and in consideration of, the, of, of what we're doing here, for and in consideration of the promises, agreements, contracts, the, we're entering into a promise, agreement, Contract and covenant. We covenant with each other. Exxon covenants with Chevron to go do this gajillion dollar offshore oil rig. It's a covenant. It's a contract. It's an agreement. That's what covenant means. It's a sophisticated legal term that simply means promise. And so we've seen the Abrahamic promise. We've seen the Mosaic promise. And today we begin the Davidic promise. Israel, as we have seen, is the major beneficiary. They are the direct beneficiary, I should say, of 
the major covenants. Israel is the direct beneficiary of the major covenants, although all of humanity ultimately benefits from the covenants. The covenants are given directly to Israel, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. They're given by God directly to Israel. But remember, Israel is a pipeline of God's blessing to all of humanity. And so ultimately, all of humanity, not just Israel, benefits from the covenants. As we've seen, the Abrahamic covenant is the granddaddy of all the covenants. All the covenants flow out of the Abrahamic covenant. They are the manner in which the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant, as we've seen, is unconditional. It is unilateral. And it is eternal. It's full of I wills. Remember in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God says, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. And Abraham's obligation is one obligation, to leave Ur the Chaldees. Once he leaves the covenant vests, and all of God's I wills vest, they come into, into commitment from God as an unconditional covenant. You remember the Abrahamic covenant, which is which is the source for all the other covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is made up of land, seed, and blessing. We saw that in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, which I know you all already have committed to memory. But just in case you don't, I'm going to put put it up here on on the screen. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see the land part of the covenant there. There was land that God gave specifically to Abraham for Abraham to enjoy a part of the land of the region of Canaan. And then there's the land promise for Abraham's descendants, which is a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East, which Israel will possess forever because it is an eternal covenant. Then there's the blessing, excuse me, the seed part of the covenant where God promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, Israel, and he promised the seed, that the seed of the woman would come through the Abrahamic line. Then there's the blessing part of the covenant. For Abraham, God promised individual blessings For the nation of Israel, God promised specific national blessings. And ultimately, for the entire world, for all of humanity, God promises blessings through Abraham. That's just by way of review, because the Abrahamic covenant is so central to, not just to the other covenants, but to all of the scripture. As we study the Davidic covenant, what we're going to see is that the Davidic covenant is the fulfillment of the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. Davidic covenant is the, is the fulfillment of the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant is unconditional, unilateral, and eternal. Just like the Abrahamic covenant. Unconditional, unilateral, and eternal. That's different than the Mosaic covenant. Remember, the Mosaic covenant is conditional. God says, I will do this, you do that. You do that. I do this. If you do X, I do Y. If you do A, I do B. We saw that in in great detail in the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey me, I will bless you with specific, unique blessings for Israel. If you disobey me, I will curse you with specific, unique blessings to Israel. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Abrahamic Covenant, unconditional, unilateral, eternal. Mosaic Covenant, bilateral, 
conditional, temporary. Now we get to the Davidic covenant, which is just like the Abrahamic. Unconditional, unilateral, and eternal. We'll see that as we go through the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is not conditioned. When we, when we see the promise, the covenant from God to David, it's not conditioned. David, you do this and I'm going to do that. And if you don't do that, then I'm going to do this. There's none of that in the Davidic covenant. It's just like the Abrahamic covenant. It's full of I wills. It's full of divine I wills, where God says, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, in terms of the promise that God gives to David. There are three words that characterize the Davidic covenant. Three words. House, kingdom, and throne. David's house, David's kingdom, and David's throne. House is the sense is used in the text in the sense of a dynasty. You know, today there is the House of Windsor, which is the English or the British royal family. Right? It's been there for over a thousand years. They call it the House of Windsor. They don't mean the sticks and the bricks and the bricks of this castle or that castle in the UK. They mean a dynasty that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. They mean a kingly line or for the last monarch, a queenly line, from generation to generation. That's how house is used in the Davidic covenant. Let's just look at it directly. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, God says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. God is speaking to David. Your throne shall be established forever. How we understand these three words, kingdom, House and throne is critical to how we understand Scripture. Because if we understand those three words literally, then that leads us down one path to understanding prophecy, to understanding Scripture. If instead we understand those three words, house, kingdom, throne, spiritually, then that leads us down a different path of understanding prophecy. If you interpret house, kingdom, and throne in the Davidic covenant with merely a spiritual meaning, then you have to conclude that the realm, that the kingdom, that the dynasty, that the throne are general, are not specific, are undefined, and they are invisible, heavenly in the sense of an invisible heavenly throne, an invisible heavenly kingdom, an invisible heavenly house. If you conclude that those three words, throne, house, and kingdom, are spiritual, then you have to conclude that they are invisible and heavenly, unspecific and undefined. We'll get into more detail as we go through this. But on the other hand, if you conclude that those three words are literal, a literal house meaning a literal dynasty, a literal throne that you sit on, that hips sit on and a body sits on, a literal throne, a literal dynasty, and a literal kingdom. If you conclude that they're literal, then you have to conclude in prophecy that those things are seen and felt and touched. And what I mean by that is, you have to conclude that there are literal prophecies that are coming. What I'm doing here is drawing a distinction between covenant theology and dispensational theology. 
Covenant theology is also re- referred to as Reformed theology. Now, when they say covenant theology, we, we studied this at, at, at the introduction to our study on the covenants. When someone says, I'm a covenant theologian, which is another way of saying I'm a Reformed theologian, they don't mean the way we're studying the, the, the covenants. They don't mean the literal biblical covenants. They mean, they, they read the scripture that, that God entered, in, entered into a covenant in eternity past. God entered into a covenant for the benefit of humanity. It's this kind of general spiritualized covenants. We've been studying not a general spiritualized kind of generic covenant. We've been studying specific covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the New Covenant. What I'm doing is drawing a distinction between covenant theology, Reformed theology, and dispensational theology. Covenant theology interprets those three words, house, kingdom, and throne, as spiritual, as general. And so the kingdom is here now. Don't you understand that you're in the Davidic kingdom, the covenant theologian would say. You're in God's promised kingdom spiritually. It's in your heart. God is reigning. The king is reigning, not God in terms of, they would say, not God in terms of the, the general authority of God, the general kingdom of God that applies to everything, but the specific kingdom that is promised in the Old Testament. The covenant theologian, the reformed theologian would say, the king is reigning in your heart today. And that's the fulfillment in a generalized, spiritualized way of the Davidic covenant. It's being fulfilled today. There's not a specific realm. There's not a specific kingdom with a specific throne and a specific realm that is, that is tangible, that you can see and touch and feel. This is the conclusion that you have to reach if you decide that these three words, house, kingdom, and throne are general and are spiritual. But on the other hand, the dispensational approach would be to say, no, there are separate, distinct dispensations in the unfolding of God's history. The dispensation, or if you prefer the Greek word, the ekonomia, like our English word economy, the the, the specific period of history where God deals, that, 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 that Greek word ekonomia has the sense of house rules, with specific house rules for Israel, a different set of house rules for the church, a different set of house rules for the millennium. And so if you approach the unfolding of human history from a house rules approach or a dispensational approach, then you read the words kingdom, throne, and house or dynasty literally specifically, a specific realm, kingdom, that will be touched and felt and seen, a specific throne that a king will sit on, and that king will reign in this kingdom. Since the promises of the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic covenant have not been fulfilled, then once you conclude that that these are literal words, that God says what He means and He means what He says, and that the promises that that, that we're going to see in the Davidic covenant, they haven't been fulfilled yet, then you have to conclude that this is yet future. Because as we go through the covenant, we'll see there are many promises that are not yet fulfilled. And so you have to conclude that they are yet future, and you have to conclude that there is a coming 
kingdom. The point is that the Davidic covenant shows us that the king is coming. That the world, as whack as it is, as messed up as it is, is not the end. There is an end coming, and it is not the end of messed upness. If I could make up a word that the world is characterized by. The end is the coming kingdom that the coming king will bring. This is why it is so important to understand the literal meaning of the words. Now, we don't always take everything in the Bible literally, right? When Jesus says he's a door, that doesn't mean he's a door that has a handle on it, right? There are statements in the text that are figurative. And so when we say we take the Bible literally, that means we take language at its normal meaning. If a word has a literal meaning, and in the context it fits to have a literal meaning, well, that's what it has. But if it's a figure of speech, then you treat a figure of speech as it is, like hyperbole or some sort of simile or some sort of uh, some, some other sort of figure of speech. What I'm saying is sometimes things are literal and sometimes things <clears throat> in the normal usage of speech, <clears throat> we use figures of speech all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes things have a figurative meaning. There's no reason as we study the Davidic covenant, there's no reason to take the words as anything other than literal. And in fact, it kind of twists language It twists the normal use of words to take those words, kingdom, throne, or house, dynasty, as anything other than literal. So with that brief introduction, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. What we're going to see is we're going to trace God's promise of the kings, because the concept of kingship is there in the beginning, in the very, very, very beginning, before the fall. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It reads like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. That's an interesting word. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That's interesting in modern culture. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we see on the sixth day the pinnacle of God's creation. You are not a monkey that has lost its fur and gained opposable thumbs and somehow has wandered out of the jungle in the form of a man. No, 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 no. You are the pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day. And God says why he created you. He created you to rule. Let me say that again. He created you to rule his creation in intimacy with him. Intimacy, intimate rulership. He created you with authority. 
The authority of mankind is repeated over and over in these verses. Four times you see this language of being created in God's image. Being created in his likeness. Nothing else in the created realm, not even angels, are described in this fashion. Three times you see our purpose of ruling or subduing. It's the Hebrew word rada, which means to have dominion over or to rule. Or it's the Hebrew word havash, which means to subjugate or to subdue. This is part of the reason why the devil hates you. Do you understand that the devil despises you? He hates all of humanity. And we walk around clueless at our great peril. We walk around thinking that we're here to frolic. La, 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 la. We're just here to skip and, 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 and sing and whistle Dixie. La, 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 la. zippity doo That is not what we are here for. We are here to rule. I mean, I'm not making this up. It says it right there in the text. We are here to rule in intimacy with God. <clears throat> you know, you hear this idea. You see it in movies. I'm the king of the world, baby. I'm the king of the world. It's this, it's this theme that you frequently see in movies where someone wants to rule the world. And you see it pop up over the generations. Right? That's why we recoil at the, at the idea of kingship. That's why Winston Churchill's language that democracy is a terrible form of government except for all the rest, that's why it, 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 it rings in our ears. We, we get it because kings abuse their position. But in some sense, there's some truth to that. Right? The, the brilliance of the wickedness of the devil is he takes something that is true and he envelops wickedness around it. He takes a kernel of truth and he wraps it around this delicious, scrumptious package of evil. But it is true. It is true that we are made to reign. It's true that we're made to rule. That's there in the very beginning in Genesis 1. But we're made to rule in intimacy with him, with God, with our master, being made in his image, in his likeness, being made to crave righteousness, to crave holiness, to crave peace, to crave justice. That is not the way the, rule, the, the world rules. That is not the way the man, the king, who says, I'm going to be the king of the world. That's not the way he rules. He rules consistent with his master, the ruler of this world, the devil, who we will see in a moment. Part of the reason why the devil hates you and all of humanity is because we are a threat to him. God gave us authority that once belonged to the devil. Let me say that again. God gave humanity authority that once belonged to the devil. At some point we'll study angelology and how that relates to the spiritual warfare that exists today that didn't exist in eternity past, because in eternity past, it was just God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Just God. And then some other things happened in eternity past. And now we're in time. At some point, we'll study angelology and how that relates to the spiritual warfare. But today, I'm just going to talk about some high points. Back in eternity past, Satan was the highest-ranking creature. 
This probably means that Satan had more authority over God's creation than did any other creature. You see this from Ezekiel 28, verse 14, where we read that he was the anointed cherub who covers. The devil was, Satan, before he fell. He was the anointed cherub who covers. That's what we're told in verse 14 of Ezekiel 28. We're also told that God placed him there. Placed him where? Placed him in this extreme position of power. We're told that he was on the holy mountain of God, meaning he had free access to the dwelling of God, free access to the abode of God. Think about it. Free, unhindered, immediate access, anytime access to the dwelling of God. And we're also told in verse 14 of Ezekiel 28 that he walked in the midst of the stones of fire. What those statements from that passage tell us is that he had great privileges. The devil had great privileges and authority in eternity past, but he rebelled. He rebelled because of his pride. His arrogance brought him to rebellion, and so that's why Isaiah 14 talks about Satan's many I wills. I will make myself like the Most High, Satan says in Isaiah 14. And so Isaiah, or excuse me, the devil took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled. After Satan's rebellion, God then created a new creature, created humanity to rule the earth as God's image bearers, as God's agents, or if you prefer, as God's regents. A regent is a royal representative. Once God made humanity to rule his creation, whatever rulership that the devil had over the planet was eliminated. Whatever rulership the devil had over the planet was removed once God created his regents, new creatures, who he said rule. Right? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is before the fall. Our calling, our design, our divine design to rule as the image bearers of God in intimacy with the Creator was back in Genesis 1. And so once he created humanity, whatever rulership that the devil may have had over the, over the planet was removed. And the devil put it into his heart to depose us, to remove the divinely appointed regal agents of God, the regents of God. And the devil, of course, is cruel and savage, so he put it in his heart to kill us. You die because of the devil. Jesus called the devil a murderer from the beginning. In the book of John, a murderer from the beginning. He orchestrated the first deaths, the deaths of the first human beings because he is cruel and savage and he wanted to eliminate those who ruled, those who had authority over the realm that he used to have authority over. And so he orchestrates the deaths, first the spiritual death and then the physical death of Adam and Eve. Once the devil got Adam to sin, he assumed authority over the planet. That's why Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Or maybe the better way to say it is he reassumed authority over the planet. The darkness of the devil has enveloped the world since Adam fell. The darkness of the devil dominates the planet since Adam fell, since Adam rebelled, since Adam disobeyed God's command. And so what happens is God says, I'm done. You rebel, I'm finished, right? No. 
No. God says, I love you. Though you are my enemies now, Adam and Eve. Because you followed the pattern of the evil one. Disobedience. It was a small act of disobedience, wasn't it? I mean, they just ate a fruit. It's not like they robbed a bank. It's not like they murdered someone. It's not like they committed adultery. I mean, it was an amoral act. It's just a fruit? No, that's not true. God established one act. There was only one act of disobedience. They couldn't commit any other sin <clears throat> but to eat that fruit. We don't know what the fruit was. Was it an apple? Was it a, was it a pomegranate? Was it a pear? We don't know what the fruit was. That was the only act of disobedience that they could do. And that act of disobedience aligned them with the author of disobedience, who was the devil. And so immediately they were aligned with the devil and, and against God. But God's plan is unstoppable. His regents, his royal representatives, his agents that he created to rule his creation, to rule his planet, rebelled and aligned themselves with the enemy of God. By disobeying, by sinning, they aligned themselves with the devil. But of course, nothing can stop God's plan. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Although his image bearers abandoned him, he did not abandon them. And immediately after the fall, he prophesies the fix. He prophesies about another human, another man. He prophesies about the seed of the woman. Please turn to Genesis 3.15, which we have seen a number of times before. But I want you to read it in light of the Davidic covenant, in light of royalty, in light of regality, in light of kingship. Genesis 3.15, this comes, of course, right after Adam rebelled, right after Adam and Eve rebelled. This is part of the punishment from God. God says, and I will put enmity between you, the you there is the serpent, who we know from the book of Revelation is the devil, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here, God prophesies that the seed of the woman, which by definition is a human, right? The, the, the woman's seed is a human seed. God is prophesying that the seed of the woman will be incredibly powerful. So powerful that the seed of the woman will eliminate the evil one. An angel, the most powerful of all the angels. Do you understand that not even the general of generals in the angelic army who is Michael, described in Revelation 12 as the general of the armies of God, the angelic armies of God, who wages war against the devil. Not even Michael goes up against the devil on his own power. You see that in the book of Jude. Michael doesn't rebuke him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. I want you to understand the power of the devil. The beauty of the devil. He's attractive. The most beautiful creature that came from the hand of God, at least at that time. Powerful, persuasive, impressive, but utterly wicked. Evil. And so what we're seeing in Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy from God that there will be the seed of the woman, a child, a human, just like the first human. Well, maybe not just like, but Human in terms of genetics. Human. 
And as the scripture unfolds, we understand that he's not just human, he's God. But that's later. In Genesis 3.15, we're seeing God prophesy that there will be a human that will be so powerful that he will destroy the most powerful of all of the angels, right? The, the order of authority and power is God, angels, humans, animals. And so here, God does something that is unimaginable from the angelic realm. What? The elect angels must have thought The elect angels approach the hypostatic union, approach the incarnation as something that is is bewildering, that is incredible, that God would humble himself and come as a creature lower than even them to defeat the most powerful of all the angels who has now fallen, the devil. This is what is being prophesied in seed form in Genesis 3.15, that one will come of incredible power, so powerful that he will destroy the devil and destroy the devil's works of death and wickedness. He will destroy the devil's grip on humanity. He will destroy the devil's grip on creation. God has the power to do all this immediately. I mean, right there in Genesis 3, God could have just said, done. Devil into the lake of fire, which, which was the sentence in eternity past. He could have just thrown him into the lake of fire then. Adam and Eve... I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you a method of salvation. You believe. Okay, we're done. We're finished. He could have finished everything then, but he didn't. This is part of the great wonder of God, that God would humble himself and come as a man and do that which the first man failed to do. This is the wonder of the incarnation, that God came as a man to rule like the first man should have done. To rule in absolute intimacy with God, being made in the image of God. This is why the New Testament talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ. The word image is very important in the scripture. Genesis 1, we're made in the image of God, but God's image bearers rebelled against him. The reason it goes to Adam, because Adam was, you ready for it? He was the authority in marriage. It's not that the male is superior to the female in marriage. That's a joke. The male is not superior to the female in marriage. But Genesis 2 is full of male headship. The the man who thinks he's superior to his wife is a fool. But God, perhaps in his great sense of humor, makes the man the authority in marriage. Because God is a God of order. God is a God of authority. And so in Genesis 2, you see male headship all over the place. The reason why the Scripture describes Adam as the one handing over authority to the devil is because ultimately Adam is the one who was in charge. And so God promises in Genesis 3.15 that he will come. Now, the Scripture unfolds this. It's in seed form in Genesis 3.15. But the seed of the woman is the man who will come and reign as God's regent the way the first man should have done. This is the Davidic covenant way before the covenant was given. The Abrahamic covenant revealed that the seed of the woman would come through Abraham's seed, Genesis 12, 3, as we have studied before. But the Abrahamic covenant also reveals something else about the seed of the woman. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't just reveal 
that the seed of the woman will come through Abraham's line. It also reveals that the seed of the woman will be a king. The seed of the woman isn't just going to be a powerful ruler. He's not just going to be a powerful leader. The Abrahamic covenant reveals that the seed of the woman will come through a kingly line and that he will be regal, royal. The reason the New Testament talks about us ruling with Christ over and over and over is because this is our calling, and we are utterly unable to fulfill our calling in our own power because we're, we're sinners by nature. This is why a, a, a new Adam had to come. The last Adam had to come, and this is why he had to be born different than anyone else, born of a virgin, sinless, not born with a sin nature. And so because we are in Adam, we will, in Christ, the last Adam, we will rule with him. He will rule in fulfillment of Genesis 1, in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, house, throne, kingdom. The second Adam will do what the first Adam was supposed to do. And the second Adam will fulfill the Davidic covenant. And we, who are identified in the last Adam, I should say the last Adam rather than the second Adam. He is the second, but he is also the last. We, who are identified with the last Adam, will rule with him. The Davidic covenant is about rulership. It's about kingship. Men and women will rule. Males and females will rule. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will rule with the one who will fulfill God's calling for humanity, the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 17. We're now going to begin to trace the kingly line. That word king is going to show up many times. The kingly line of the seed of the woman that goes through the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant reveals the kingship of the seed. Genesis 17, verse 4, Abraham says, God says to Abraham, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. We're still talking about the Abrahamic covenant here. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Abraham means the father of many. Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings, there we go, and kings will come forth from you. Abraham had at least eight sons. He had Ishmael from the slave girl, from the Egyptian slave girl Hagar in Genesis 16. He had Isaac from Sarah in Genesis 21. And then he had six more sons from Keturah in Genesis 25. But at the time that this promise is given, at the time that verse 6 is given to Abraham, he only has one son, his oldest son, Ishmael, from Sarah. And so Abraham is thinking, wow, through Ishmael, my oldest son, my only son, God is going to bring these kings. Now, it's true that through Ishmael, kingly, there was a kingly line. Ishmael is the father of all the Arab nations. And so Arab kings come through Ishmael, but that's not what God's talking about. That's not the promise that God is laying out here. We know from Romans 9 and Galatians 4 that Ishmael was an unbeliever. And the kingly line that matters is the line of faith. It's not just about genetics, 
descendants of Abraham. It's, all, it's also about faith. And so in Genesis 17, God is promising a kingly line that will come through a child who is not yet born, but who will be a believer. A child who is the second born from Abraham. His name is Isaac. He will be a believer and he will be born after this conversation between God and Abraham. True power emanates from God. This is why he's called, forgive me for saying the the obvious, but this is why he's called the Almighty. God is called the Almighty. Or to use the language from Revelation 1, when Jesus calls himself the Pantocrator, the all-powerful one. Jesus, by the way, said that. Because Jesus is God. God is called the Almighty because all power emanates from him. God channels his power only through those of faith. God channels his power only through those of faith. If you do not submit to God in faith, then you do not know God's power. You may have power, but your power is unrelated to God. Your power is the power of the world. Your power is the power of the world which is controlled by the evil one. If you do not submit to God in faith, then you do not know the power of God. Remember, Paul describes the gospel as the power of God in Romans 1. The power of God is channeled only through those of faith. And that's why God does not bring the seed of the woman, the kingly line of the seed of the woman, through Ishmael, who is a descendant of Abraham, to be sure, but an unbeliever. God brings the, the kingly line of the descendant, the kingly line of the Abrahamic covenant of the seed of the woman through a descendant of Abraham who is a believer, only through believers. He brings it through Isaac. It's through the children of faith that God communicates his power, and that's why he takes it to Isaac and then beyond. We see the believer Isaac in verse 16, down to verse 16 of chapter 17. God says of Abraham's wife, Sarah, I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be called the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So here we say, oh, okay. The king's not coming through Hagar. The king's coming through Abraham, yes, but not through his union with Hagar, through his union with Sarah. Keep reading in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. God talks to Abraham, and Abraham's response is to laugh. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, you can't blame Abraham, really, because this is funny. It's funny. I mean, if a 90-year-old woman walked through that door right now with a baby bump, we'd have to chuckle a little bit, kind of rubbing her tummy because she got a baby growing. And I mean, you've got to smile at least. That's just funny because it... It defies everything we know. And if a hundred-year-old man is sexually able to, 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 to have relations with his wife, just I mean, that's a little funny too. Because it defies everything we know. But with God, nothing is impossible. This is why Abraham laughs. Keep reading in verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Because Abraham's not really sure yet. At this time, the only son he has is Ishmael. But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name 
laughter. That's what Isaac means. Laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. The kingly line does not come through Sarah, not through Hagar. It doesn't come through Ishmael as Muhammad claims in the Quran, as the Muslims claim. That is not the line. It's not through Ishmael because Ishmael is an unbeliever. It comes through the boy whose name is Laughter, Isaac. Then the question of Isaac's descendants comes into play. Isaac would have two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob would be a believer and Esau not. Kings came from Esau to be sure. The Edomite kings came from Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites. But again, it's not just any kingly line that matters. The line that matters is the line of genetics plus faith. Paul says very clearly in the New Testament, the true Jew is the one who is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a a, a genetic descendant, and also a descendant of them by faith. By faith. And so you see this in the beginning of the patriarchs. In Genesis 35, we see God's words to Jacob. Please turn there to Genesis chapter 35. Here we're going to see the kingly line continue through the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 35, verse 9. It reads like this. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. In the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel, as we've seen, it wasn't wrong for Israel to want a king. That wasn't wrong for Israel to to, to want a king. The problem with wanting a king in 1 Samuel When the people came to Samuel and said, give us a king, the problem was the last phrase that they used. Give us a king like all the nations. They didn't want a king who was prophesied in the kingly line from Abraham, then to to Isaac, and then to Jacob. They didn't want a king like that. They wanted a king like all the other nations. A king who was independent from the kingly line. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob has the 12 sons who are the 12 tribes of Israel and the kingly line or the, well, the kingly line of the seed of the woman is narrowed into one of those 12 sons. Please turn to Genesis chapter 49. There we see the further narrowing of the kingly line of the seed of the woman, which goes through the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 49 There, Jacob will address each of his 12 sons, and the words that he uses for his 12 sons are prophetic in significance. When he gets to Judah, he says this in verse 8. Verse 8 of Genesis 49 reads like this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Here, Jacob is speaking words of prophecy that Judah will dominate his enemies. That's what happens when you 
have control of your enemy's neck, right? The vulnerable part of the body, one of the vulnerable parts of the body. When you have control of their neck, it's saying Judah will dominate his enemies, but he will not just dominate his enemies, he will be praised. All of Israel will praise him. That's why it says all the other brothers, your, your, your other 11 brothers, they're going to praise you, Judah. It's interesting that the name Judah means praise Yahweh. That's what Judah means, praise Yahweh. Jacob's prophetic words are indicating that the kingly line will come through Judah and through the line of kingship, Yahweh will be praised. Keep reading in verse 19, or verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. Jacob keeps, keeps speaking with respect to Judah. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The lion is the king of the carnivores, right? The lion is called the king of the jungle. In other words, he's the king of the animal kingdom. Human kings often use lions as a symbol of power and royalty. They did it in biblical times. They do it in modern times, right? King William of Scotland was named William the Lion. King Richard I of England was named Richard the Lionhearted. For centuries, the royal coat of arms of the British monarchy has had lions in it. Even the royal standard has lions in it. You remember the the funeral not long ago from Queen Elizabeth II, and she had the royal standard, the royal flag on her casket. You see the lion there on the standard that is draped over her casket. So it's understandable that the lion will be one of the regal symbols of the king of the kings, of the king of Queen Elizabeth II, of the king of King Charles, of the king of King David, of King Solomon, of all the kings that have ever existed and that ever will exist. The presidents, the potentates, all of them, the prime ministers, all of them, the king of the kings, it's understandable, will have the lion as one of his symbols. This is what is being described here with Jacob's words with respect to Judah. In Revelation 5, 5, the king of the kings, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Genesis 49, verse 10, gives us a regal symbol of the seed of the woman. We're tracking the line. We're tracking the kingly line. Because the seed of the woman is not just a leader. He's not just a ruler. He is of royalty. He is of royal descent. He's called in Isaiah 9, the prince of peace. Right? The prince of shalom. Some kings come to power because they seize it. But a true king comes to power because he's born a prince. This is what we are seeing in the early parts of the scripture. Keep reading in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is like a golden baton. A golden baton is, you see this on the, on the casket of, of the queen here. You see that, you see the golden, you see the, the, the crown and the golden orb. And then that golden kind of short stick is a, is a baton. That's a, maybe a, a vulgar way to, to describe the scepter. The scepter represents 
authority and power. And it's held by one who is of royalty. This is what is described here in the text. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This phrase, until Shiloh comes, is a difficult phrase to translate. It could refer to a place like the city of Shiloh, which is about, or the town of Shiloh, which was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was there for many years during the times of the judges. Or it can refer to a person, and it can be translated the way the NET and the NIV translated, until he comes to whom it belongs. If you're reading from an NESB, it has a note that refers to this translation as well. This is how I understand the phrase Shiloh. Shiloh refers to a person who embodies the coming of royal power. The passage is saying that the scepter and the ruler's staff are coming to the one to whom they belong. And we're waiting for that. We're expecting that time. The kingly line will come through Judah, and it will culminate in this descendant of Judah. The king will be absolutely unique. He's different than all the other kings, right? The great kings of Israel, David, Solomon, they had the obedience of the Israelites and the obedience of maybe some, some vassal nations that were, that were neighboring nations to Israel. But this descendant of Judah is said to have, you see there in the verse, the obedience of the peoples. This isn't just the Israelites that will obey this king. This isn't just the neighboring countries that are around Israel. This is all the peoples of the entire planet. We're seeing a king that is fundamentally different than all the other kings of Israel. For that matter, all the other kings of all the other nations of all the other eras Verse 10 is saying that all the peoples of the world will obey this king and the crown of humanity will sit on this king's head, will rest on his head. This is a reference to the millennial kingdom and beyond. The seed of the woman will rule the world forever as God designed humanity to do. Back in the beginning, back in Genesis 1. And his reign will be characterized by unimaginable prosperity, unbelievable prosperity. You see that in verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. These are words of abundance. Remember the first miracle that Jesus performed? The first public miracle that he performed in John chapter 2, where he turns wine, he turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Because wine is a symbol of prosperity, not drunkenness. Wine is a symbol of blessing and prosperity, and it's especially a symbol of the blessing of the kingdom. And so Jesus comes along in John chapter 2, and the first public miracle that he does when he's offering the kingdom to Israel is say, see It's symbolic. He takes ordinary wine and he makes it that which is representative of the kingdom, the blessings of the kingdom. And so what you're seeing here is 
the words of Jacob with respect to Judah described as prosperity, the blessing, the joy of the coming kingdom. Jesus' first miracle evidenced that. And Jesus is, of course, the king who Judah, he's the king who Jacob is, is referring to in seed form in this passage. The way you understand that this is about abundance and prosperity, extreme prosperity, is because this man takes his donkey and ties it to the vine. Why don't you do that? Why don't you tie an animal to a choice vine? Right? Expense, choice wine is expensive. Well, the choice vine is super expensive. Why don't you take a donkey and put it right next to a vine? Because the donkey's herbivorous, and the donkey's going to eat your vine. He's going to eat your choice vine. So much for your valuable vine that produced that valuable wine. But because prosperity is going to be so extreme in this era, brought about by this king, it's everywhere. The prosperity is going to be everywhere. Everything's going to be of extreme value. So what if the donkey eats that, that, grape, that, that grapevine that produces this you know, $500 bottles of wine? So what? We got a gajillion of those. Is what's being described here of the prosperity. It's words of hyperbole. And you have to kind of get your mind in the Wayback Machine and travel back into that era of, of wine being this symbol, which is described in the Bible, the symbol of prosperity and this symbol of blessing. What is also described here is, you know, the, 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 the water in your dishwasher after you've, you've, you've used it in, not, not your dishwasher, your washing machine, you put your dirty clothes in the washing machine, wash it, and that water that's in there before it leaves the system, it's kind of, eh, right? It's dirty and grimy. This is described here as, as clothes, the, 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 the fluid that's going to be used to wash the clothes is $500 bottles of wine because it's these words of hyperbole. It, it, $500 a bottles, bottle, bottle, bottles of wine are going to be so common, you use it to wash your clothes, you let the donkey eat the, the, the grapevine, who cares? We got a gajillion of those. They're words of hyperbole, words of exaggeration that are used to describe the extreme prosperity that this king will bring. The point is, he's going to undo the curse, the curse of Genesis 3, right? Where we will work by the sweat of our brow. We will work the ground and thorns and thistles, to use the old English language, thorns and thistles will grow. Everything's going to change under the realm of this kingdom, under the realm of this king. Because he's going to undo the curse that makes prosperity difficult. We work, and when we work, it's difficult work. We're designed to work. God made us to work. He, he had Adam and Eve. He said, go to my garden. And he didn't just say, just sit in a, on a lazy boy chair and do nothing all day. He said, work. Tend to my garden. But after the fall, work is more difficult because of the curse. What we're seeing here is that this king, this descendant of Judah, the seed of the woman, will undo the curse, and that's why prosperity is going to be everywhere. Money is going to be grown on trees. Prosperity is going to be in great abundance because this king is like no other king. Let's close there.
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great promises that you have given us. We ask that you help us remember these when times get tough, when the world throws their attractive temptations to us, that we would wander off like the pig in the mud. We ask that you help us remember the great promises that you have given and the kingdom that is coming. We ask that you help us understand the text. Give us eyes to to see your realm, your spiritual dimension, that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.